I'm Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Anne Speed. And we are Homebrew Murder Crew. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Homebrew Murder Crew. Um, it is your host, Christy, and I'm actually bringing you guys a cryptid homebrew murder crew tonight. So we're going a little bit folklore And to be honest, like, as I'm researching this, I'm like, you know what? This kind of, like, it hits every little marker that we have for our podcast, which is, like, there's some true crime in there. There's some dark history. And there's some paranormal. And so it's going to be really fun. So I'm going to tell you guys about Wendigo. Have you guys heard of this before? I've heard a little bit about it. Okay, okay. Um, Brittany, what about you? Oh, I actually haven't heard much about it other than what you've mentioned. Okay, perfect. Well, um, to start off, I mean, Wendigo has a bunch of names that it goes by. It kind of depends on, like, the region that you're looking into this. Um, For Canada, it's actually Wendigo, which is W-I-N-D-I-G-O. And for the States, it's Wendigo, W-E-N. Um, try as I might to say Wendigo, I just can't. So for the duration of this episode, I will say Wendigo. Um, <laughs> but some other um, some other ways that you can say it are Wendigo, 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 <laughs> and there's various other names, including Manaha. So... Because this is um, a more of like an indigenous folklore, um, I you, you hear like I said, depending on the region and, and that you talk to these people, um, there's different ways of saying it. But um, essentially, what Wendigo is is a mythological creature or an evil spirit which originates from the folklore of the plains and the Great Lake natives, um, as well as some First Nations. And its native habitat is the boreal forests that stretch from eastern Newfoundland and Labrador to the Rockies in the west, where we're from, yeah. and uh, from the north of Hudson Bay down to the Great Lakes region um, and grouped in modern ethnology as speakers of Algonquin family languages. So um, to give you an idea of the nations that it comes from. However, its true abode is really in the space between myth and reality. Existing with one foot in the, in the material world and one foot in the realm of the spirits. Interesting. Spooky dookie. Um, so the Wendigo is often said to be a malevolent spirit, sometimes depicted as a creature with human-like characteristics, like uh, w- or which uh, possesses human beings. So it's like a human-like being, and it will take a hold of you, essentially. Oh, good. I'm so excited um, to have nightmares right. tonight. Right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure as Nolan sits right beside me here while we're, we're driving, he's also very excited to be listening to this. <laughs> um, but the Wendigo is said to invoke feelings of insatiable greed and hunger, uh, the desire to cannibalize other human beings, you know, just that, uh, as well as the propensity to commit murder in those that fall under its influence. Oh, good. 
So, yeah. Um, if you open up any map of like the Great Lakes region or almost all of Canada, even, you'll see scores of places that contain Wendigo in their name or one of the other dozen spelling var variations. Um, there's 32 places in Ontario with Wendigo or Wendigo in their name. Uh, with Wendigo Lake, Wendigo Island, those occur several times. And there's five places in Manitoba, which I am right now. <laughs> oh, oh, fun. <laughs> like, also, like, why are so many places naming their, their places after something so terrifying? So I'm going to, I'll get into that in a little bit here, actually. I do cover that. Um, so in Manitoba, there's places like Wendigo Point, Wendigo Beach, Wendigo River. And in the Great Lakes region, there's Wendigo Ranger Station, uh, Wendigo in Minnesota, or sorry, Lake Wendigo in Minnesota, and Wendigo Lake in Wisconsin. So yeah. it occurs several times. Yeah, and so here we go to answer your question, Brittany. Um, unique and unusual places like this were often given names re reflecting their spiritual status. But in English, some examples tran translate to place of spirits or medicine place, good or bad, or sacred place. Uh, when European settlers arrived and encountered places named after native spirits and indigenous magic, they interpreted them as heathen sites. Like they, they could only be evil. So to many Europeans, spirits of non-Christian nature, whether good or bad, they were all devils and demons to them. So, I mean, it's obviously easier to demonize something than to actually take the time to learn about it. Thanks. Thanks, colonizers. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> tell me you're colonized without telling me you're colonized. Exactly. So considering the Wendigo was a type of evil spirit, likely the only one from native cosmology that they're aware of, settlers named many sacred sites after the Wendigo. Um, among early settlers, the name Wendigo or any type of Manitou was synonymous with the devil. So besides Wendigo names, we also have scores of places with names like Devil's Lake, Devil's Backbone, Devil's Punch Bowl, etc. <laughs> <laughs> many have striking geological features like rock formations, caves, and grottos um, or other natural oddities. So uh, if you're on a road trip and you see a place with the name Wendigo or Devil in it, it's probably worth a side trip. That's just a little bit about Wendigo to uh, to start. Oh, that's so, I'm so excited for this. I, I actually realize now that you're talking that I have no idea anything about the Wendigo. It's, and you know what? Wendigo. I you a little bit. It's come up a little bit in my research for other stuff but like man when i when i dove deep into this holy smokes there's so much there's so much are windigo different than skinwalkers so uh, this is the thing is yes but man it makes you think and i was thinking when i was finishing this up i'm like they're they're so close to each other i felt like that i again i wonder if it's a geographical thing and if right. it's like the more northern this mysterious creature lives is a Wendigo and maybe the more central or southern maybe it's a skinwalker um, because we will talk about its ability to shapeshift and transform a little later on. Interesting. I'm yeah. excited for this. So yeah. I'll tell you guys a little bit about uh, the appearance. So descriptions of Wendigos generally fall into three distinct categories. So a malevolent spirit-like entity, a mad human driven to cannibalism, 
or a large non-human or no longer human ogre-like monster. So when you Google image this, and obviously for uh, our listeners, um, we're going to have on our socials some photos, and I'll include um, one of all three. But basically think of something that's like um, more spectral in nature, number one. Number two, um, more like a skinwalker-looking thing or um, like gaunt skinny emaciated scary human type thing um or (laughs) (laughs) number three three would be something that's kind of more um like it's got uh like deer antlers um kind of like a wolf deer head thing Um, it stands on its hind legs but it has haunches like a deer yeah so more beastly yeah just give me a little visual there (laughs) i'm not gonna be able to walk down the hallway later on tonight (laughs) oh man oh you just wait you just wait So many indigenous traditions indicate that some, if not most, giant wendigos were once humans who were spiritually attacked, possessed, and just driven to madness and cannibalism. Once they had eaten human flesh, they began a metamorphosis into a literal monster. At odds with its portrayals in the 20th century and the 21st century settler culture, in some indigenous representations, the wendigo is described as a giant humanoid with a of ice um, a foul stench or sudden unseasonable chill might precede its approach as well um, possibly due to long-time identification by europeans with their own superstitions about werewolves um, for example as as it's mentioned in the, it's called the jesuit relations and i'll tell you what this is in a second but um, hollywood film representation often label human beast hybrids featuring antlers or horns as i had talked about before with the wendigo name but some such animal features do not actually appear in the original indigenous stories. So to go back to that Jesuit relations, um, it's basically when the settlers came over, um, of the Jesuit mission missions in new France. So um, these guys are coming over and they're basically just writing journals about the way that the first nations are living their lives and how they interact with each other, um, how they hunt, um, their spiritual beliefs and, and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so that's essentially what this book is. Um, the works were written annually and they, um, and printed beginning in, in 1632 and ending in 1673. But as far as the indigenous people of the land knew it to be, the Wendigos were invariably deathly thin and lanky. So most descriptions say that they're, and I'm sorry for this, but that their skin is pulled tightly over their bones in a perpetual state of starvation. Okay. It's it's interesting now that their skinniness never actually equates to being weak or fragile. It's actually quite the opposite. And this is what makes them so supernaturally creepy. They're thin and emaciated, yet they are still unnaturally powerful and dangerous. So unlike vampires, their gaunt forms... Um, they belie how strong and deadly that they actually really are. And in some folkloric tales, they are described as so thin that they can only be seen head on because if you're viewing it from the side, they almost disappear. They're just invisibly thin. (laughs) They're Kate Moss thin. Right, exactly. (laughs) Sorry. And their skin is often jaundiced, gray, or even blackened with frostbite and hardened like ice, making them near invulnerable to conventional weapons. Some are said to even sweat blood. 
Tails mentioned how Wendigos often chew away their own lips out of hunger. I mean, same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> add, add that. Add to that a gruesome <laughs> grin with a mouthful of crooked yellow teeth with long fangs. Bye. What an image. <laughs> what an image. I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> Adios, amiga. <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. Now, in the there's a book called The Manitous, The Spiritual World of the Ojibwe uh, by Basil Johnson. Uh, Basil Johnson's a Canadian writer, storyteller, language teacher, and scholar. And he explores the etymology behind the term Wendigo. Johnson states that the word may be derived from Wien Dago, meaning solely for the self, or it may originate from Wienen Nadigo meaning fat or gluttony. So considering the environmental conditions, it's easy to understand why individuals or monsters that only think about themselves or who take more than they need were seen as the epitome of evil and death. And when I say considering environmental conditions, remember that this is a creature that's seen more mostly um, in like northern Canada, northern states, right? Like the winters are brutally cold. Okay. And we're going to get into this a little bit more here, but I just wanted to kind of clear that up. These are brutally cold winters. I mean, you and I, we have all the amenities during winter and we're still like, holy fuck, fuck this shit, right? Yeah. So why do I live where, where the air hurts my face? Um, but just imagine having to fry, find food um during this time having to hunt game having to forage for berries or anything right um that's where that comes in i've often thought about that being indigenous and being canadian it's like how did my ancestors handle winters in canada yeah (laughs) crazy yeah so we'll get into that a little bit more um, right now, actually. So the Wendigo is closely linked to the winter season. Um, it's a bleak and often brutal time of the year, where in earlier times, the struggle against starvation was a constant one. And winter is the time of year when the Wendigos are actually most active, as they are the manifestation of brutally cold temperatures and wintry conditions. It's almost like there's very few stories of Wendigos appearing in the summer months. Interesting. Uh, Wendigos... Yeah. Wendigos are said to be able to control the weather and bring howling winds and blizzards with them as they rampage through the wilderness. And remember how I had mentioned that the Wendigo is like a personification of icy cold northern winters? Yeah. Among many tribes, children are actually told not to eat snow or ice out of fear of a Wendigo spirit may cause or may use the ice to gain a foothold inside of them. That's creepy. And even even today in parts of northern Minnesota, children are discouraged from making snowmen out of fear that a Wendigo may inhabit the snowman. Could you imagine? That, like form as a gateway into the physical realm. Could you imagine being a child in Canada and afraid of snow? Do you want to build a snowman? No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't want to build a fucking snowman so and this is interesting because this is somewhat similar to a tradition among the pennsylvania dutch where scarecrows must actually be burned before halloween or risk being inhabited by malevolent spirits and i had no idea that you're supposed to burn a scarecrow uh, before halloween well it's a good thing i don't have a scarecrow right yeah but interesting um, another feature of the Wendigo legend that makes it fascinating and terrifying is the creature's ability to take on varied forms, a shapeshifter, if you oh. will, as many of the legends claim. Now, transformation is a common 
theme in many Wendigo stories. They can control their size by swelling up or getting big if they're on a rampage or they can shrink down to normal size. Um, they can also transform into other animals like owls. Great. Love that for us. Mm. So because of this, owls are often viewed with suspicion and dread as they it's believed that they could be a Wendigo in disguise or a feathered spy under the Wendigo's control. Now, I, at my grandparents' farm, there's two owls. There always has been. They've got this one tree that they're always in. I call it home tree. And let me tell you, the next time I'm at the farm, I'm going to view this a lot differently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are one of the Wendigo's creatures. Now, another creature of the Wendigo is a porcupine. Therefore, one must never kill a porcupine or they risk angering a Wendigo. And among the Cree and Ojibwe, they, the porcupine is especially revered. And it's a, because it's a bold animal that trundles noisily through the forest because it has no fear of other animals. It can just be like, yo, what's up? And stick its back out and then you're fucked, right? You get close to it. <laughs> Yeah, and, they're massive uh, to porcupines. Yeah, and contrary to popular belief, and maybe this is just me, but I will say it for our um, windshield factor people out there. Hey, um, <laughs> so me. <laughs> porcupines don't actually shoot their quills. What? No, they don't shoot quills. They just ball up. And then when like you see dogs getting quilled all the time, it's because the dog goes to bite at them and goes to attack them. So when they lean into them, the quills, the barbs of the quills stick into them. Oh, but they well, don't shoot pork. They don't shoot quills. I've always felt bad because I thought the dogs just got shot with them. But if they're already biting it, then I mean, yeah. you yeah. know, play stupid games when stupid. stupid exactly. <laughs> So, um, yeah, very, very fun. Um, they can also take the shape of black dogs or have been thought to have dogs accompany them. One of the most feared aspects of the Wendigo is its terrible cry or howling wail. In many written accounts and oral narratives, this is the first warning that a Wendigo is approaching. And it's often described as like a keening high-pitched wail or whistle that's carried through the wind. In other tales, uh, Wendigos make a bellowing sound that shakes the ground, sending entire villages into panic. There are many accounts of a Wendigo's wail causing paralysis to varying degrees. And victims are described as frozen with fear and slow to make a hasty retreat. Because that's it's like a fucking video game is what it is. Like, yeah. <laughs> like new skill unlocked, freeze enemies with your <laughs> disturbing whale. Oh my goodness. So people are frozen in their tracks or rendered unconscious, making it easy for a Wendigo to snatch up and devour its victims. <laughs> Canadian Ooh. anthropologist Diamond Jennies, um, or Jennies, Jens, whatever. Jenny. Um, Jenna, Jenna, um, from 1886 to 1969, he recorded tales of Wendigos and their powers. On the Wendigo's howl, he writes, its breathing is like the whistle of a train audible for miles, and its shouting weakens the limbs of the Indian it, per it pursues. Terrifying. It reminds me of, like, when a, I mean, not that I've ever had a tornado approach me, but, like, these <laughs> movies, it's, like, that screaming howl of, like, the wind. Oh. I'm thinking about how I sound when I'm outside when it's freezing cold. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, 
with that, some people believe that Wendigo legends are essentially cautionary tales about isolation and selfishness, as we talked about, like, the gluttony part of it and taking too much for yourself, especially um, when there's not enough uh, to go around, right? So, and then they also talk about it being about the importance of community. But is that all? Or is there something more sinister lurking in the depths of these isolated First Nation encampments? So I want to tell you guys a little bit about the book that I read leading up to this episode. Um, it's called Wendigo Lore, Monsters, Miss and Madness by Chad Lewis and Kevin Nelson. And I want to take a moment to tell you about this. And um, like, I really wasn't expecting much from this book because number one, I got it for free on my um, Kindle Unlimited subscription or something. So usually when I get free books from there, it's nothing to write home about, but I had to look more into like who the writers were and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll tell you about them because I took so much information from this. Like it, it is so thorough. And although much of what I tell you today comes from what I've learned from this book, there is a lot that I had to just leave out because I don't think we need a two-parter on the Wendigo. (laughs) We could make a two-parter out of it, but yeah. But if this topic interests you or any of our listeners out there, I highly recommend this read. It's so good. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the authors right now in this book for some background on what to expect. So for over 25 years, Chad Lewis has traveled the back roads of the world in search of the strange and unusual. So from tracking vampires in Transylvania and searching for the elusive monster of Loch Ness and trailing the dangerous Tata Duende through the remote villages of Belize and searching for ghosts in Ireland's haunted castles, Chad has scoured the earth in search of paranormal, in search of the paranormal, sorry. And um, Chad was also featured on the Discovery Channel's A Haunting, William Shatner's Weird or What, ABC's Scariest Places on Earth, and Monsters and Mysteries in America, along with being a frequent contributor on Ripley's Believe It or Not Radio. He's got a master's degree in psychology. He's authored over 25 books on the supernatural and extensively lectures on his fascinating findings. The more bizarre the legend, the more likely you'll see Chad's name associated with it. Kevin Nelson, he grew up in Wisconsin, surrounded by lumberjack lore and tales of Northwoods monsters. Uh, The rich folklore of the Great Lakes region made a deep impression on him, which continues to the present. He continually travels the nation seeking out and recording America's hidden legends and vanishing folklore. Um, So these guys are just super interesting, and they've done a lot to to create this book, which was written fairly recently, um, starting in 2019, so... Now back to the Wendigo. Unquestionably, the Wendigo is and always will be a First Nations legend. Much like vampires are forever tied to Transylvania, werewolves to Europe, gnomes and fairies to Ireland, and so on. Yet, all of these monsters are not simply bound by specific culture, geographical borders, period of time, religion, gender, or belief system. They simply just exist in the deepest crevices of the human brain. And they transcend man-made labels, and um, they you know, harken back to something darker and more sinister that dwells deep in the human mind. Very psychological. We believe that the absolute true nature of the beast cannot be truly known by anyone who is not acquainted with First Nation winter life 400 years ago, whether you're Native or not. That type yeah. of Wendigo exists only in that space of space and time adhering to those specific belief systems. There's, there's no doubt that today's Wendigo is much different than the ones inhabiting the original lore. But 
there's another thing uh, off of that that this book gets into uh, near the end. I Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to finish the book. Um, at this point, it's kind of going into the psychology part of it and what people believe to be true and not true. But I just find it hard to be in a position to say this stuff isn't true when you weren't the one living through that hardship right and I mean I we as a human race we make up a ton of fantastical things like in order to cope with certain scenarios or overcome different tragedies and events right but like when we get into the story part of it like how are there so many synchronicities which it just really makes you think yeah well and anything that makes you stop and think also makes people uncomfortable I find that's true To better understand the Wendigo, we do need to understand a little bit about the indigenous beliefs surrounding animals and spirits or spirit animals, spirit guides. So among the Métis, Ojibwa and other Algonquin Algonquin tribes, dreams are seen as just as important, if not more important than the waking world. So dreams have a power to transform individuals by giving them powers and insight. And the process of transformative dreams begins at puberty with males. So when a boy reaches puberty, he's basically sent out to go on a vision quest by himself. He's, they instruct him to fast and spend time alone outside of the village. And his goal is to seek a sacred vision that will come in the form of a dream. So this is done in the spring, typically when the snow is melting. And it's a rite of passage where a young man is forced to leave his childhood behind, face his fears, and kind of decide what kind of man he was going to be for the rest of his life. Each person's experience is different, but while in a trance state and obviously induced by hunger and fears of being alone in the wilderness, young men, a uh, young men, sorry, wait to make contact and receive a message from their personal, um, I'm going to attempt to say this, uh, Powagon. I was saying it in my head earlier, Powagon. I'm going to try to say this the best I can. I'm sorry if you're listening to this and I'm just butchering it. Please send me an email and correct me. Uh, Pay again or dream visitor or Manitou. So spirit guardians are tutelary beings, meaning like they're teachers who come in dreams and bring blessings and powers. They are regarded as one's patron spirit. And it's believed that a person's life will not actually be successful at all or reach its full potential without the assistance of their spiritual helper. So each person is linked to a a specific pawagon at birth, but they usually remain hidden, making themselves initially known only during the vision quest. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous about that because I would love to go on a vision quest. I mean, I volunteer as tribute. That would be fun, but don't get too jealous yet because I'm going to get into a little bit more here too, okay? Okay. Um, There are many types of Pawaganak, which is the plural form, and they fall into three general categories. All the individual, or sorry, all of them are individual entities with proper names rather than classifications, types, uh, or types of entities. The first class are the anthropomorphic beings from native mythology. Second class are the masters of the animal species. And the third class are semi-human entities representing spirits of creatures that are mythical in nature, including the Wendigo. So the concept of the Wendigo spirit can be confusing, especially for those who aren't familiar with the native belief systems and cosmologies. And within the spiritual realm, there is a primary or eternal Wendigo spirit. So 
this is often viewed as a single mythical entity where Wendigo with a capital W is a proper name. So think of it as it's it's similar to the difference between the devil with a capital D proper name and devils. Like they're separate okay. entities, but also spiritually linked. So there's like, oh, a bunch of little devils there or whatever. But then there's the one, the devil, right? Yeah, I get what you mean that. Yes. So often Wendigo spirits are just discussed in a plural sense as there can be many, but they are all parts of the primary Wendigo. And this is a feature of the spiritual realm. It doesn't have the same hard and fast rules as the physical world. So therefore the Wendigo can just simultaneously be a single primary being, or it can be a multitude of Wendigo spirits. Just what we were all hoping for. Oh yeah. Women can obtain guardian spirits too. Ah, but there we go. But not through the sacred fast. Their discovery of their Powagon, if at all, is often a random encounter. Typically, they are not sought out by women. Instead, discoveries are usually accidental, but not on the part of the Powagon. They reveal themselves for a reason. Women are not required to reveal their personal Powagon, whereas the males are. So once the males get back from their vision quest, they have to go tell everybody who their spirit is, right? Women don't have to do that. They can uh, fucking keep that shit close to the chest. You know what comes to mind? Uh, uh, Brother Bear, that Disney movie. Yes, exactly. Oh, I love that movie. So women aren't required to reveal their personal Pamagon, and this gives them a measure of power. One never knows if they may secretly have an immensely powerful Pamagon at their disposal. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck we rock, man. man. <laughs> in Ojibwe stories from the Upper Barrens River, Ojibwe informant Adam Bigmouth describes an incident where a small group of women killed two Wendigos. When returning from a hunting trip, two men saw giant footprints in the snow heading towards their camp where they had left their wives and children. Concerned that the women and children could be in danger, they quickened their pace to hoping to catch the Wendigo before it threatened their families. When they arrived, they saw the camp was in disarray as if a battle had just taken place. Tents were torn and birch bark canoes were smashed. They thought they were too late until they saw their wives sitting by a tent, calmly rocking their cradle boards or baby carriers. Not far from the tent, two giant wendigos lay dead, and they knew the women had extremely powerful pewagonak. It was their pewagonak that had destroyed the wendigos. No one knew what the women were capable of before this happened. Adam Bigmouth adds, quote, of course, a lot of times it was found out that a woman was much stronger through dreams than a man. The reason they were so strong was because no one knew what they had dreamed. Everything was secret until the time came when they needed their helper, end quote. In tribal cultures, age is associated with increased power and the secret power of women, like their unknown Pewagan, makes them unpredictable and not to be under underestimated thus with an older female wendigo one couldn't accurately assess the level of danger until it was too late so in one case near poplar river canada a minister asked that a stricken elderly woman be delivered to a local asylum so this meaning they figured that she was turning wendigo 
So, yeah, so this woman is, uh, and I'll get into it a little bit more, but essentially when a tribes person thought that they were turning Wendigo, they, they feel famine, they're lethargic, they're having hallucinations, they're not feeling themselves, they're withdrawn, they feel like they're becoming Wendigo, or somebody else might see this in a person and they think that they're going Wendigo, right? So they start mm-hmm. freaking out. They're like, holy shit, this person's going Wendigo. He's going to start, or he or she's going to start fucking eating my whole family, right? so that's where this is coming from so um the local chief william Barron, stated that he would require 15 men to get there and to ensure their safety not hers so they needed 15 men to ensure each other's safety they didn't give a fuck about the woman they just like let's get this woman to the asylum okay so they weren't taking any chances on march 16th 1888 the fort wayne sentinel ran an article with the headline Quote, cannibal, 12 persons said to have been killed and eaten by a woman. End quote. The article reads, Winnipeg, March 16th. A case of cannibalism reported from the Peace River country last summer turns out not to be caused by hunger, but the work of a woman who became Wedico several years ago and has since killed and eaten 12 persons, members of her own family and others. She was alive at last accounts from Edmonton. The Indians and half-breeds express surprise that the government does not arrest and punish her for her crime. That's a freaking actual headline in an actual newspaper, you guys. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. Like, and from an actual... I know that the media has a long, long history of being clickbait, but I think this is pretty early on to be <laughs> yeah. clickbaiting everybody, right? Yeah, I would hope that title would draw me in, though. Right? Yeah, I'd be like, I need to read this. (laughs) But my God, we'll get into. um, We'll talk a little bit about Wendigo sickness. So it's possible that some cases of Wendigo sickness reports um, of swelling up and loss of appetite for normal food could have been a reaction to eating like unprepared moss or lichens, um, or just in, in general like food poisoning, right? Furthermore, it's also possible that allergic reactions to toxins contained within rock tripe um, may lead to a state of delirium, causing victims and witnesses to believe somebody was going Wendigo. So there's possible nutritional explanations for the symptoms, but some symptoms of uh, this Wendigo sickness include shakiness, dizziness, sweating, hunger, irritability or moodiness, anxiety or nervousness, headache. Um, When you think about that and like, you have to remember the time in which these stories are being told and these incidences are happening and how much that we don't know about modern medicine. Right. So thinking like, yeah, it could be food poisoning. Um, It could be a reaction to toxins. It could be an allergic reaction. It could also be low blood sugar, right? There's so many things that can lead to these symptoms that um, like it, it does, it does make you think, are we just, trying to put a name to something that we're feeling or what what is really going on right um now something that they would do to help mitigate this is uh bear grease um so they bear bear grease in particular contains large amounts of um vitamins like vitamin c to mitigate those symptoms so they often had like hot um hot bear grease on the oven like at all times just when somebody's kind of feeling a little bit down right now we talk about Wendigo psychosis. So in modern psychology, 
in modern psychiatry, the Wendigo lends its name to a form of psychosis known as uh, Wendigo psychosis. Yes, I said that in modern psychiatry. Interesting. Really? Yeah. So this is characterized by symptoms such as an intense craving for human flesh and an intense fear of becoming a cannibal. (laughs) Oh, so that's what I have. Oh, no. JK, everybody. JK. Uh, when the- are you? Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know. Just don't check my freezer. <laughs> Jesus. So oh. Wendigo psychosis is a- actually Brittany. That's my freezer. You're in my house. You're implicating me, man. So Wendigo psychosis is described as a culture-bound syndrome. In some First Nations communities, other symptoms such as an insatiable or such as insatiable greed and destruction of the environment are also thought to be symptoms of Wendigo psychosis. So in other words, if you're just a fucking asshole, you're <laughs> the Wendigo. <laughs> I'm gonna like I'm gonna look at assholes like people assholes. Well, you know what I mean. I'm gonna look at assholes. Yeah, you do that. <laughs> you know, Never spoke about Brittany. So for the first step, we have to define what Wendigo psychosis is. Unlike nearly every other mental disorder, Wendigo psychosis is not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, which serves as a definitive diagnosing guide for mental health professionals, which is great. So we go to the doctor and we're like, I don't know, like maybe it's depression, maybe I have ADHD, maybe I have bipolar, maybe I'm Wendigo, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Because I don't think there's a pill for that. Yeah, um, I it would make I would feel better about myself if I could walk into some place and be like, I'm just going to go. Don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, instead, many contend that it actually falls under the category of a culture-bound syndrome. That it uh, that is syndromes that are recognized to be contained within one spe- special culture or segment of society. So the American Psychological Association's Dictionary of Psych psychology defines Wendigo psychosis as, quote, a severe culture-bound syndrome occurring among northern Algonquin Indians living in Canada and northeastern United States. The syndrome is characterized by delusions of becoming possessed by a flesh-eating monster and is manifest in symptoms including depression, violence, a compulsion, a compulsive desire for human flesh, and sometimes actual cannibalism, end quote. <laughs> Sometimes, just Just occasionally, just the odd, right? Everything in moderation, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So Wendigo psychosis gained prominence in the early 1930s when missionary J.E. Sandin, who worked extensively with the Cree people, began to notice what he called a sickness, quote unquote, afflicting the people who lived in the Wendigo areas eerie patterns began forming among people displaying the effect of the sickness and another original proponent of the theory was dr john cooper um an anthropologist and instructor at the catholic university who coined the term wittico psychosis in 1933 this theory this theory quickly spread through the aid of many newspapers one ran an article that was headlined freak madness from hunger makes victims turn cannibals and the article provides a fascinating insight into the theory to which cooper explained quote victims imagine themselves actually to be the dreaded Whitico, which has a heart of ice and lives on human flesh 
end quote. Cooper's assessment of the illness seems to align with its current designation as a culture-bound syndrome, as he has firmly believed that the Whitaker madness probably exists in no other part of the world. And honestly, I couldn't find anything like nothing European or anything like that of the Whitaker, which when we were talking earlier at the beginning of the episode about, is it the same thing as a skinwalker, right? Yeah. Because so far there's, I'm seeing some similarities, but I don't know if a skinwalker is cannibalistic is the only thing. I don't, yeah, that's the only, I'm not sure if they are. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that they are. I don't think that's something that's specific to them or anything. Right. So, Stories of Wendigo giants are often regarded as something of the distant past. By the mid-20th century, apologists found that stories of the cannibal giant had receded from the consciousness of many tribes. They had only vague memories about the mythic monster. It was always far away and long ago. And in the early 1940s, anthropologist Horace Beck was told by Cree and Ojibwe informants that the Wendigo was seldom seen and had withdrawn to the north. By the 1970s, it was believed among some tribes that the last Wendigo had been run over by a train around 1962. What a way to go. You're a fucking Wendigo and you get ran over by a train. Right. (laughs) Like, geez. So as the story goes... Quote, the Whitaker was extremely hungry, having been deprived of human flesh for a long time. In desperation, he decided to stop the Canadian National Railroad train on the run from the pass to Churchill and to eat the passengers. Oh, fun. He's, yeah, he stood on the tracks before the approaching train and attempted to paralyze the locomotive engineer and crew and to stop the train by his terrifying appearance and superhuman power. <laughs> and then he'd just eat everybody. But his power was so inadequate because he was so weak and he was actually run over and killed end quote that's how the story goes so if one is to adhere strictly to the lore it would be assumed that the train's wheels severed the wendigo's head from his body because that's one of the ways that to truly kill a wendigo um another way is setting it on fire because you have to burn the heart to melt the ice around the heart because remember these things are ice So, yeah, and as if the prevalence of Wendigo in Canada alone isn't unsettling enough, chapter four of this book that I just told you guys about is called Territory of Terror, Alberta, Canada. Oh, good. (laughs) That's nice. A whole ass chapter based on (laughs) Alberta Wendigo. Perfect. Yes. (laughs) So... I'm going to tell you some of those stories. Um, but as I had mentioned earlier, Kevin and Chad put a lot into writing this book, Wendigo Lore. So, so much, in fact, that they actually traveled to Alberta in the winter of 2019 to get a firsthand look at the Wendigo's hot zone in order to try and dig up some additional cases. They've always believed in the idea that nothing allows you to appreciate a legend as much as actually being there and walking in the footsteps of the folklore. So I'll take some time to read you guys the stories uh, directly from the book as written by Chad and Kevin. Um, from their interviews and research. Um, One of the biggest ones, though, and the most well-known one, is a Swift Runner. Have you guys, are you familiar with that case? No. No, I'm not. Okay. I don't want to go, I don't want to dive too deep into this because I feel like this could be an actual, like, really good episode and case to cover. But um, Swift Runner, uh, his actual name was uh, Kakisikuchin. 
Um, he was executed in Fort Saskatchewan after brutally killing and eating his family. And he's actually Alberta's first government sanctioned hanging of a wind of a Wendigo. Ooh. So he apparently he took his family hunting and trapping for the remainder of the winter, which is pretty common. Nothing unusual there. But and he was accompanied by his wife, Charlotte, their five children, his mother-in-law and his brother. And in the spring, he returned to the Roman Catholic mission uh, in St. Albert, saying that the winter had been harsh and his entire family died of starvation um, and that he basically just ate them because they are already dead. Right. But um, stories came up afterwards and as he starts speaking to people but an investigation was launched uh, during which swift runner confessed that the evil spirit of the wendigo had been tormenting him in his dreams um, and in cree mythology if the wendigo possesses a person in their heart to ice and causes them to hunger after human flesh so it was the it was then that the Northwest Mounted Police went to his camp discovering the bodies of his family members which had been brutally murdered so he's actually quite charming man, says the constables. Um, the constables here at the fort actually came to quite like him, supposedly. So he was a, he was a nice man otherwise. But and it's it's crazy to me that somebody can get arrested for their the belief system, right? Um, like they uh, they shouldn't be held to the same standard of law as Europeans based off of their belief systems. Do you know what I mean? Does it make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a little bit crazy. So now that we've gone over some of the history and um, the psychology surrounding the Wendigo, I'm going to now read you a few tales directly from the book Wendigo Lore, Monsters, Myths, and Madness by Chad Lewis and Kevin Lee Nelson. The first story that I have for you is Marie Courtville turns Wendigo. Marie Courtville's mental condition had rapidly deteriorated to the point where only death could deliver solace from the cannibalistic cravings that consumed her every ghastly thought and action. For several weeks, Marie had been caught in the inescapable grips of the Wendigo, even as her loving family frantically tried to cleanse her of the evil spirit. It was the summer of 1887. Marie and her family were part of a larger encampment of native peoples living there, living near the confluence of the Lesser Slave River and Lesser Slave Lake, just outside of Slave Lake, Alberta. Marie was relatively new to the Slave Lake area, having arrived just two summers prior with fervent hopes of escaping her tragic past. She had recently married Michael Court. Porterville, the chief of the Lesser Slave Lake Indians. But this wasn't Marie's first marriage. According to an article in the Capel Vedette, she had previously married a man from the Alexander's Band of Indians and, a happy, and the happy couple had several children. Four years before arriving in the Slave Lake, a dreadful fate began to curse Marie. First, her husband met his watery grave by drowning in the Pembina River. While she was still mourning the death of her husband, Marie's children began falling ill and dying as well. By the time she reached Slave Lake, only two of her seven children were still alive. The relocation to Slave Lake did nothing to disrupt her cursed fate, and soon her remaining two children joined their siblings in death. The unimaginable sorrow of losing the, her entire family was thought to be the impetus of her mental collapse. Whatever the cause of her illness, Marie was starting to turn into a raving lunatic. 
An article in the Edmonton Bulletin which covered Marie's death laid out the circumstances of her heartbreaking fall into insanity. Those living at Slave Lake began noticing something strange and odd about Marie's behavior, claiming she was very dull and would not eat and remained in the state for quite some time. Her mind wasn't the only thing changing. Her body inexplicably began to swell, an odd condition that has accompanied several alleged Wendigo cases, as documented by researcher Nathan Carlson in his paper, An Ethnohistory of Cannibal Monsters in Northern Alberta. Seeing his wife suffer from worsening mental and physical pains, Michael told her, quote, I think you are going to turn cannibal, end quote, to which Marie eerily replied, quote, it is to be that I aim to eat you. I like you all, but I am bound to eat you. Kill me, for I intend to eat you. End quote. Even with a dire death warning from his wife, Michael could not be persuaded to kill her, instead stating, quote, We can't kill you. We love you too much. End quote. Michael was not a fool, though, and as a precaution, he and his son Cecil hid all the weapons from Marie. Late at night, when Marie believed that those around her were asleep, she would frantically search for a weapon to kill her family. Eventually, she was bound with heavy ropes as, her, as the two men tried to everything that they could to cure her. Yet, despite their best medicine, she continued to escape the ropes and threatened that she would kill and devour all of them. For the 20 days, Marie suffered through some strange transformation of moaning while violently lashing out in fierce anger. Eventually, her husband asked her if she was brave enough to leave this world. Her reply was a roar like an animal. The men prayed and prayed, hoping to avoid the gruesome task of killing their loved one. The prayers failed, and the men feared that it, is, it was nearly too late to stop her from fully turning Wendigo, so they grabbed two axes and smashed her with severe force on her head and breast. Quote, when the deed was done, the women and children around cried out with fright. The body kept moving for probably about an hour after she, an hour before she died, end quote. A coffin was hastily constructed and Marie was quickly buried the, that same evening. It is not known why her body was not burned, as fire was the more traditional means of disposing of a Wendigo. Hearing of this killing, officers were sent to Slave Lake to arrest Michael and Cecil for the crime of murder. Neither man protested the arrest as they truly believed that they had done nothing wrong. In their eyes, they had saved their tribe from a cannibalistic Wendigo who would have undoubtedly devoured all of them. Not surprisingly, the law did not view it in the same manner and put the father and son on trial for murder. After short deliberation, the jury found the two men guilty of manslaughter and both were sentenced to six years of hard labor. It seems strange that so much emphasis was placed on this killing at a time when death from starvation and disease had fully engulfed the people around Slave Lake. An article in the Plattsburgh Republican detailed the carnage, writing, quote, over 150 died last month from measles, and as the fisheries have failed and the rabbits and lynx have deserted the country, they have no means of subsistence." end quote. In just one month, over 150 people met their end, making it even more amazing that putting one severe ill person out of their misery would even echo through the death storm that was decimating Slave Lake. The next story I have for you is the giant man-eating monster of Eating Creek Road. 
The legend goes something like this. Long ago, many native people had an encampment along Eden Creek, a small trickle of water that eventually joins Mitsu Creek, Mitsu means eating, and then goes on to Lesser Slave River. According to research by a gentleman named Joe McWilliams, the early people of the area believed that a giant man-eating wedigo lived amongst them. The beast's hunger for human flesh was insatiable, forcing it to constantly devour any human prey it could locate. The creek quickly developed a gruesome reputation, prompting the native people to warn white fur traders to visit the area at their own peril, lest they be eaten by the monster. For his otter call, McWilliams interviewed two longtime residents of Eden Creek Road, brothers Leo and William Giroux, who recalled hearing the grisly stories of the cannibal while growing up in the area. In their grandfather's time, someone became a wedigo and began killing and eating those foolish enough to remain near the creek. The brothers didn't know exactly when or where it happened or who was involved but they were, but were brought up believing the stories to make matters worse the brothers were often told that quote no normal human power could prevail against the wedico end quote the absolute last thing any kid wants to hear about monsters while the majority of the people that were turning Wendigo were destroyed before they were able to go on a full-blown killing rampage, this apparently was not the case at Eating Creek. While expanding on the gruesome idea, McWilliams wrote, quote, that wasn't so at Mitsu. According to the stories, parents passed on to their children in that area. The Drew brothers, among many others, are convinced that Mitsu names were given because a Wendigo actually went wild and ate people, perhaps many people in that neighborhood. End quote. The Trout Lake Tragedy. A Wendigo murdered by his companions for their own safety. That was the tantalizing headline of an article in the May 8th, 1990. Sorry. That was a tantalizing headline of an article in the May 8th, 1896 edition of the Glenborough Gazette. The article told the terrible tale of a man being killed in Trout Lake the previous winter. The victim's name was Napanin, and various newspapers described him as a fairly intelligent man, about 35 years of age, who provided well for his wife and children. Sometime in late January, Napanin set out from Wapiska, now known as Wabaska. He was in good health and was joined by his wife and children, and they headed to visit his father in Trout Lake. The easy travel did not last long. On the second night of their journey, his wife reported that, quote, he acted strangely, saying that some strange animals were about to attack him, end quote. The identity of the strange animals was never disclosed. Perhaps it was the Wendigo or perhaps some other weird creatures, as the forests were chock full of legendary monsters. Whatever strange animal it was, it was so disconcerting that his wife, fearing for her life, pushed for him to go on ahead of the rest of the family. Upon reaching Trout Lake, his troubling condition continued to deteriorate, and for the next 20 days, he was plagued with, with fits of insanity that became increasingly more frequent and violent. Not only was was he suffering from mental changes his body was said to have quote swelled considerably and his lips were much puffed out end quote again with the swelling 
In his sporadic moments of lucidity, quote, he told his friends that he did not intend to hurt anyone, but if they considered him dangerous, they had better kill him, end quote. While his wife and baby were out visiting a neighbor, the decision to kill him was made. Sensing that something wasn't quite right, his wife rushed back to her husband's room just in time to hear the death-dealing blows of the axe. Apparently, the four men in the room had previously tried to secure Napanen with ropes, only to discover him wriggling free. They struck him with four blows of an axe due to the belief among Indians that a bullet will not pierce a Wendigo or man-eater. The body of the Wendigo was quickly burned and buried. After being burned, a series of large trees were felled over the grave to prevent the possibility of a reappearance of the Wendigo. Such was the fear that the Wendigo would rise up from death that any and all measures of finality were implemented. The four men responsible for Napanen's death and many others in the tribe strongly believe that his killing was justified on the grounds that unless he was killed, he would have killed others. The final story I have for you is Moose Tooth Turns Wendigo. One of the most infamous Wendigo cases occurred in the winter of 1899. It happened at Smoky River, a place near Lesser Slave Lake in northern Alberta. The extraordinary case was covered in numerous newspapers around the world, including the Winnipeg Tribune, which published the complete court confessions of one of the defendants, Nape Susi. The band, which consisted of 32 members, was camped together in two shacks and two teepees. The hardships of winter had not strained the friendship and camaraderie that existed among the members living so close together. Everything had been going well until a man named Moose Tooth, who was especially well-liked by everyone, began telling folks that, quote, he was afraid an evil spirit was getting the better of him and that he would turn wetico. End quote. Plagued by fear, he added, quote, If I ever go wrong, you had better kill me as I do not wish to destroy my children. End quote. Soon, sickness was plaguing several tribe members, including a man na named Napasis and Moostus, who were both brought to Entomanihu's teepee. Entomanahu was the chief medicine man of the tribe, and Moose Tooth went to him to, quote, join in the medicine making and sorceries which were being practiced with a view of curing the sick men, end quote. These measures once again confirm the notion that the sick and ill among a tribe were not quickly disposed of just to make life easier for the rest of its members. Whatever rituals and rites that were performed, they did not come to the aid of Moose Tooth, who now took on a frightening appearance, appearance as, quote, his eyes were rolling and glittering, and he seemed afraid to look at anyone in the face, and he was all the time muttering to himself, end quote. It appeared as though the Wendigo's icy spirit was starting to possess Moose Tooth as he was overheard saying, quote, I look on these children as young moose and I long to eat them, end quote. The sudden viewing of loved ones as tasty game animals was one of the telltale signs of a Wendigo possession. Apparently, the Wendigo's work was swift, as later that evening, Moose Tooth looked wilder and more dangerous than ever. As a last-ditch effort, a special medicine lodge was constructed and, quote, the whole skill and power of all our sorceries was enlisted in an attempt to bring Moose Tooth back to reason. The singing of medicine songs, drumming, and dancing were carried on from sundown to almost midnight, end quote. At first, the medicine seemed to be working as Moose Tooth lay quietly on the floor. Then, out of nowhere, Moose Tooth shouted, this night you will all die. 
as his eyes began to roll back in his head and his body thrashed about, he continued, quote, if I get up, I will kill you all tonight, end quote. Then springing to his feet with alarming speed, Moose Tooth shouted, quote, I will kill you all. I will not leave one alive, end quote. Perhaps realizing that the Wendigo was already fatally embedded into Moose Tooth, Edamaniho whispered, quote, it's no use. I can do no more do your best to hold him, end quote. Several people struggled to restrain Moose Tooth as he began whipping his head back and forth, grinding his teeth, and attempting to bite and tear at people as though he were a rabid, wild animal. The entire room was filled with extraordinary fear. Their worst nightmare had become reality, and dreaded Wedeco had fully arrived. A woman named Eliza sprang to her feet, holding in her right hand a medicine belt and in her left an axe. Her hair was flying loose as she was dancing and singing. All of a sudden, she ran around and thrashed Moose Tooth over the face and breast with his medicine with this medicine bag several times. Finished with her blows, Eliza then handed the axe to a man named chuck a chunk who smashed it over moose Tooth's head spitting splitting his skull nappy Susis, the defendant then drove a knife into moose Tooth's body and stuck the axe into his chest outside a man named peu the other defendant alarmed by the screams of the fear of the women and the calls of the men entered the shack he was handed an axe and without hesitation smashed it into the head of moose Tooth. needless to say moose Tooth was dead very dead but here is the most interesting part. When the court asked Nape Susis what they did next, he replied, quote, We sat around the body until daylight. End quote. Even though Moose Tooth was without a doubt dead, the tribe expected him to rise up from the dead and they wanted to kill him again if he tried to get up. If you thought killing was excessive and gruesome, wait until you hear what they did to the Wendigo after it was dead. Nape Susis' testimony provided great insight into the belief system surrounding the Wendigo. The court asked him what the tribe believed was wrong with Moose Tooth, to which he replied, quote, he was a Wedic, and I know he had a lump of ice in his body causing the malady, end quote. Not convinced that a Wendigo could be killed so easily, Nappy Susis and Piu grabbed Moose Tooth's dead body and drove a stake through the axe hole in his chest, pinning him to the ground. When they pulled out the stake, they poured boiling hot tea into the wound to thaw the Wendigo ice that had spread through the body. As the morning sunlight was setting in, Nape Susis was joined by Entaminahu's wife. Neither of them were convinced that Moose Tooth was completely dead, so they tied his legs with chains and attached the chains to two pickets in the ground so that if, quote, he came back to life again, he could not get up and run after us, end quote. Surely they had entirely surpassed their due diligence and could rest easy in the fact that the Wendigo was finally dead. Nope, Napeusis grabbed an axe and proceeded to cut off the head of Moose Tooth just to be, quote, sure that he was dead and in order that, even if he got up, he could not eat us, end quote. After all the multiple attacks and brutal violence, they simply left Moose Tooth's headless body tied up in the shack. This is an especially odd case when you consider that only Nape Susis and Peyu were brought to the trial for the killing, although Nape Susis' version of the was the most wildly circulated in the newspapers, it wasn't the only version of events. Several other tribal members testified to various versions of events that best suited them. If Chuck-a-Chunk was the first one to smash his axe into the head of Moose how did he escape prosecution? Regardless of what really transpired in that medicine tent, only Peyu and Nape Susis were charged. Nine different people testified at the trial, including Chuck-a-Chucks and 
including Chuck Chuck and Peyu. And after four hours of deliberations, the jury convicted Nappy Susie's of manslaughter and acquitted Peyu. Believing that the killing was done in self-defense, the judge gave Nappy Susie's a slap on the wrist and sentenced him to two months of hard labor. Well, that is crazy. Honestly, I'm probably not going to sleep tonight. I'm going to have all the lights on in the hallways and pretty well anything creepy that's ever moved in a creepy crawly way is like PTSD through my brain. Thanks, Chrissy. Especially (laughs) now that we know we live in the hot spot. Right? Especially because we're in the hot spot. Also, why are we in the hot spot? Where in Alberta is this quote unquote hot spot? It's like Slave Lake. Oh my God. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I'm yeah, so uh a lot of fun. And again, when I started like uh researching this, I had no idea that Alberta was a hot spot and that there's a whole ass chapter on it in a book. Like my oh. god. But guys, like this deep dive has given me a whole new appreciation for these types of stories and the cryptid and the cryptozoology. Like I'm obsessed. Well, yeah. and it's a creepy it's a creepy direction for us to go to because uh sometimes murder like gets a little bit too much. So yeah. cannibalism, gotta throw that in there every now and then. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Well great way honest, to break I them. hope that you enjoyed this as well. I am sorry if I creeped you the fuck out. But if you have if you guys, my our audience, if you have Wendigo stories, I'd love to hear them. If you can email them, our email is homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. Um, I'd love, love, love to hear your stories, uh, whether they are personal stories, personal encounters, or whether they are stories that have been passed down to you. Yeah, definitely send us those stories. And you guys can also reach us at our other socials. We're on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew. We're on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Sweet Bye. Bye. Bye.